hope is that you'd feel enriched and encouraged by the time that we get to spend time together here at uh, True North. And uh, it's so fun for me to be here. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Phil. I'm part of the team here at True North. On a Sunday, I'd normally be at our Mullaloo campus. But so fun to be here together with uh, Pastor Ryan and all of you this morning. It's actually, it's a little bit nostalgic for me just being here with just Ryan today. Like many years ago when we were in our 20s, we used to run our youth ministry called Raw Energy, me and you getting stuff done and fun to still be doing ministry many years later. Not too many years though, we're still fairly youthful, right? Like somewhat, somewhat youthful, you know, we're getting to the bad end of 30, mostly me, but you'll be there soon. Yeah, well, we're, uh, we're starting, a, as Ryan said, a brand new series today, Party Theology. And the whole idea of this series as we track with this over the next couple of weeks is to begin asking the question, how does my, sh- how does my faith shape the way that I carry joy in my life? You know, one of the really regular pictures that we see throughout the teaching of Jesus is him using the picture of a party, like a feast, a wedding banquet, some kind of celebration to describe a really important aspect of what the kingdom of heaven is like and what it looks like for us as people of faith to carry the evidence of God's kingdom. And he uses the picture of joy and celebration and parties to communicate a central aspect of what it means to be the people of faith. You know, so often in Jesus' teaching, he'll give us parables around feasts and banquets and different celebrations. So often in the ministry of Jesus, we see him present at different meals, at different occasions, at weddings, being a part of the joy that's captured in those moments. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these different aspects and what it means for us as the people of faith to be the life of the party. Does that sound fun? You know, there's something about our faith that is defined by the joy of our salvation and the joy that we know in Jesus. And uh, so for the next uh, next couple of weeks through this series, next few weeks, we're, we're going to be leaning into this. It's going to be a whole lot of fun as we look at some of these different spaces. And, uh, and today, we're going to go to one of those moments where Jesus is actually attending a party. It's a great wedding celebration. And we're going to begin reading that story together in John chapter 2. So you guys ready to, to get into God's Word? this morning. You ready? Do we need to do a little bit of light stretching first? Or are we ready to go? You, you're ready to go? Okay, cool. Well, we're going to begin in John chapter 2. And here's how the evangelist John begins this passage. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, Jesus's mother, Mary, you guys remember Mary, the mother of Jesus? Yeah. So she was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this statement right here is the tension that we're going to see in this passage. So Jesus' mother, he and his disciples, they're all there. Now, it's pretty likely that that Jesus was there as as a guest. He wasn't there as a teacher or a rabbi or anything like that. He was just there hanging out with friends and family. And then we have this statement, there is no more wine. Can someone say no more wine? Say it again for me, a bit more strength. No more wine. Now, for us, if we're at a particular party, maybe a wedding, something like that, and say all the food runs out or all the drinks run out, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a mood killer. A little bit of a mood killer. I remember in my own wedding, uh, my own wedding reception, I didn't get enough food that night. And I had to make a decision as I was driving to the hotel for our honeymoon to begin, do I drive through Hungry Jack's on the way? So this is like a key moment, right? You've been married for about four hours. It's been this beautiful romantic day and I'm like, far out, I need to go to HJ's on the way to the hotel. You know what? 
I didn't do it. And I was, you know, pretty hungry until the next morning we had an epic breakfast and that was fun. But, but there's, something, there, there's something that we can kind of resonate with an aspect of this problem. But to get at the real guts of it, we've got to think about, okay, what did this mean in the world that Jesus lived for the wine to run out at a wedding celebration? You know, for a wedding, uh, a wedding celebration like this, it wasn't just a, a reception of a couple of hours on a particular evening after a ceremony. It was more like a week-long festival, just an astronomical expense for the host. Anyone here provided a wedding for kids? Anyone? Yeah, a few of you. It, it, is it, it, I hear it's pretty cheap, right? Pretty affordable, the whole thing. Not too much of an expense. No, it, it's pretty expensive. Now, imagine providing that level of feasting for an entire week. It was a huge deal, a huge deal. Now, one of the key symbols of joy at these wedding celebrations and these wedding festivals was the wine. It symbolized the joy of the couple coming together. And to try to to describe what it might have been like, it was so culturally recognized that the wine was just the symbol of what the wedding celebration was. It would be almost like for us in a Western context around Christmas, doing Christmas without Christmas trees and lights and Christmas presents and trying to enjoy Christmas Eve, Christmas morning without any of those things is what it would have been like trying to have a wedding in the world that Jesus lived without wine. It's almost like it was a key symbol that captured the joy of that occasion. Now, what would eventually happen as the, the, the days went by, as people continued celebrating, people, the party continued, more and more guests keep gathering, that eventually the resources would run out to continue to buy more wine or they'd run out of the stores of wine and all the wine would be gone. And basically that would signify something, that the party was coming to an end. That when you were running low on wine, when you were running low on the symbol of the joy of that occasion, it wasn't so much a, a, you know, a devastating social faux pas, but it was an indicator that the time for joy around this wedding celebration was coming to an end when they were running low on the wine. You know, as I begin thinking about our theology of party and the way that we carry joy, I start thinking about how people who do not have a faith view my faith in who God is? How does the the communities that we live in, what would be some of the words that they would use to describe what faith is like, what Christianity is like, what the church is like? You know, so often when I'm meeting people and having conversations with people that aren't on faith, kind of the words that they use to describe my faith before fully getting to know me is that it's kind of running a little bit low on joy. That it's running low on joy. Some of the words that, that people use when they speak to me are things like, oh yeah, so, so you're a Christian, that means that you believe in God. So they identify that I have belief as pretty central to my life. And then they'll say something like, oh, and that means some other things, like you don't drink too much, or you don't have sex before you get married, or you don't do this, this, and this. So the first few things that get identified as I have conversations with people is sure that I'm a person of belief, but then I'm also a person of boundaries, that I'm a person of behavioral boundaries, that that's what faith is. And the whole picture that they're describing is a picture of faith that is running low on joy. Now, party theology is about saying, because of who God is, because of how I connect with God, I actually live out of a source of joy that is greater than anything else. And that's where the life of the party comes from, that I'm actually operating with beliefs that bring joy to my life that can be experienced by those that are around me. So how do we become those kind of people? 
You know, there's something in this passage that I think helps us take steps in that direction so that when people see my life, when people see your life, they see an evidence of your faith. They see a life defined by joy. So here's the problem of the party. There's no more wine. Let's go a little bit further in the the reading and see how Jesus responds here. He says, woman, why do you involve me? And just to be clear, this isn't a a derogatory statement as the the wording's translated into English. It can seem a little bit bit abrasive for us. But Jesus uses the same expression when he's upon the cross and and saying farewell to his mum. So he says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So Jesus, he kind of resists. He recognizes that his mom's taking responsibility for this problem. Clearly, she thinks that the time for partying hasn't come to an end. And she thinks to herself, we need to do something about this. I happen to have God's son right here with me. Jesus, you need to do something about this problem. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Any teenagers here this morning, if your mom's trying to get you up one morning, this is a verse that you could quote. Why do you bother me? My hour has not yet come. Maybe she'll be impressed enough that you're quoting scripture that she'll let you sleep in a little bit longer. More likely, she'll just rip the covers off and get out of bed right now. I'd particularly advise against using the woman at the start of this if you tend to use the verse that way. Now, verse five, he continues. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I love reading into this phrase a little. Let's remember that Mary, she's been living with Jesus for the last 30 odd years. And can you imagine how many crazy and miraculous things Jesus has done up to this point? How many insane experiences that she's had with Jesus? It's almost like she's saying, okay, guys, he's gonna ask you to do something crazy. I can just feel it in my bones. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, here's the key detail that John gives us within this passage that we've got to make sure that we don't miss. He says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So six of these stone jars, it's like about 450 liters, absolutely massive. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water all the way up to the brim. They would have already had some water, but he says, fill them all the way up to the brim. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The inference being, the master of the banquet's gonna taste it, and this water is gonna replace the wine that has run out. This water's gonna replace what is missing. So we've got to think about these stone jars. John gives us a lot of detail about the stone jars. And can we actually put that image up? We've got a picture here. Now, this is, this is one of the, the ceremonial washing jars, not, not used by Jesus on this particular day, but taken from the same era. And uh, this is actually a museum in modern-day Cana where they believe was the, the village site where Jesus attended this wedding. And they, they may or may not have got that right. It's kind of one of three possible locations. But anyway, there's a museum there where they've got one of these ceremonial stone washing jars and, and on display there. And actually, pretty, pretty funny. Right nearby this, you guys are going to love this. Let me show you another image here. There's, there's actually a winery right nearby where you can buy the first miracle Cana wedding wine, a nice calf's have. Now, I can only imagine this is, this is marketed entirely to American tourists going to the Holy Land. And uh, I don't tell Dean that I made that joke, but it's okay. He's an Australian citizen now, so he can laugh as well. 
But yeah, so nearby you could go and see one of these stone jars and also pick yourself up a, uh, a nice calf's out from the, uh, the miracle wine of this story. So, so this stone jar, we're, we're told that it's the kind of stone jar used for ceremonial washing. Now the picture of this, that, that these stone jars would have likely been outside the house or in an outer court, something like a garage, that kind of place. And that as the guest arrived at the party, this was the place they would go first, to the stone jars the ceremonial jars for washing. Now, what's significant about this is that we have to understand the religious framework of the Jewish people based on the Old Testament covenant and the the framework of relationship that they had with God. That so much of it was about being in the right place to experience the presence of God. Now, what, uh, what they had was this idea of uh, ritual cleansing. If you're ever interested in that, you can read through Leviticus 15, and you'll see a bit of a picture of that. Not, not incredibly exciting stuff, but we'll give you a context for what's happening here. And so what they would do throughout their day, and uh, a lot of them uh, leading lives in agriculture, they would have all kinds of experiences throughout the day which would make them ritually unclean. That if they handled certain kinds of animals or, or got around manure around said animals or if they had wounds that were weeping or all kinds of things, there were huge lists of things that would make them ritually or ceremonially unclean, which meant that then they were prohibited from being in the presence of God. So what they would do, they would go through a process of ritual cleansing or ceremonial cleansing, which would basically be washing, but not for the purposes of hygiene, but for the purposes of becoming proper and appropriate to be in God's presence. This is what ritual cleanliness, uncleanliness was all about. And so this also factored into the way that they celebrated and the way they approached meals. So observant Jews, they'd come to a a wedding celebration like this. The first place that they would go after they've traveled from wherever they are, it's to the stone jars. They were made of stone because they believed that that the stone was less likely to to contract ritual uncleanliness as part of their uh, belief structures. So they'd go to the stone jars, the stone jars of purity, so that they could qualify to be in the presence of God, so they could qualify to be a part of a holy celebration. And so they would wash in the jars, and they would wash in the waters, so that the things that disqualified them from the presence of God would be taken away. Do you see the picture here that's starting to evolve? And so that they'd, they'd, uh, they'd, they'd wash and then they'd be qualified to be in God's presence. You know, I wonder if you've ever been in an experience at a party or a gathering of people where, where you feel like, I shouldn't be here. <laughs> I don't qualify to be in this place right now. I remember I went to a wedding once upon a time when I was about 17 or 18 just to qualify this story. And as I was uh, choosing my outfit, pretty important thing when going to a wedding, right? Probably mostly girls are nodding with me at the moment and some guys are like, yeah, maybe not so important. But on this particular wedding, I decided, and it had just been coming fashionable at the time just to give myself some, you know, get out of jail card here. I decided that I'd wear, you know, my nice dress pants, a nice button-up shirt, and all look pretty nice. And then I decided I'd go to this wedding also wearing a pair of thongs. Has anyone ever done that before? It's, it, I now realize that that was a, a cultural no-no. But I was like, this is the style. Everyone's doing this. And in fact, the, the grandmother of the bride she saw what I was wearing really early on as I attended this reception, and she made a beeline for me and started telling me how inappropriate I was, which was probably fair enough. But I just, I just, felt, I just felt this incredible sense of, oh, shivers, I can't be here. I've got to hide my feet. I've got to hide them under the table somehow. I'm not walking anywhere. I'm certainly not going to the dance floor. I'm about to get, you know, let, uh, you know I'm just going to be trying. Uh, 
But what was really cool was the bride actually saved me on like multiple occasions, came up and like gave me a hug as I was getting scolded by this particular grandma. This is just a fun experience. But what the, the, water of, of the, the water of these stone jars would do is make it so there was nothing that people could judge you for. You could just be in the presence of God, celebrating without any problems. And so what's so important is that Jesus is about to do a miracle of transformation in an Old Testament symbol of behavior and a religious framework that was all about, you are not okay, you need to do this to become okay. And Jesus is about to do something in the waters of these stone jars. He's about to change something. So let's continue in the scripture a little bit further here. So the servants, they listened to Jesus, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And here we see the evidence of the miracle. He did not realize where it had come from. He didn't know that it came from the stone jars, though the servants who had drawn it, of course, knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said this, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Someone say best till now. And it's important that we know this, that the, the, the master of the bank was saying, this wine is amazing that you brought the best till now. Now what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So if you're familiar with the gospel of John, there are seven signs where Jesus reveals his nature as the messianic son of God. And this was the first one, changing water into wine at this wedding in Cana, saving the best till now. And the disciples saw it and they started to believe in his glory in a profound way. Well, what Jesus was doing in this moment was bringing about a change in the waters. There was a change in the waters. There was literally a change in the waters of the stone jar as the, the waters of purification became the wine of joy. Remember what the wine symbolized at the wedding. But there was more than just a change of the waters for that particular party around that wedding. It was a change in the waters of how we engage in relationship with God. That it's no longer about the things that prohibit us from God's presence and what we need to do to be made right so we can enter into God's presence. But now it's about the reality that Jesus has provided new wine. That Jesus has provided new wine and not only has he provided it, but he himself is the new wine of joy. You know, new wine is very commonly talked about in Old Testament scripture. New wine is commonly prophesied about in Old Testament scripture when the, the prophets speak about the coming age of fulfillment where God's provision would be known. I wanna show you a couple of examples of this really quick that we see in the Old Testament. The first one here in Jeremiah, they will rejoice, they will be joyful, they will take joy in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine. It's this picture of abundance. New wine will drip from the mountains again and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. 
Now, this picture of new wine in the Old Testament was always coinciding God's provision and God's ultimate messianic provision in Jesus. So the new wine was the abounding joy that accompanied the fulfillment of who God was. And so Jesus, in this picture, at this wedding at Cana, the first of the signs of revealing who he is, is creating that new wine here at a wedding to say the time of fulfillment is here. The new wine is here, and I am that new wine. So the new wine is a picture of the messianic fulfillment and the presence of God coming into the world in the form of Jesus. And he reveals it in the context of a party here at our wedding in Cana. So then here's where we get to our idea of of party theology. And we get to this idea of what does it mean to live out of the new wine? To live out of the new wine of who Jesus is. To allow this to to bring shape and transformation to our lives and how we approach our faith. You know, faith becomes joyful communion with Jesus. It's not about the things that we must do, the beliefs that we must hold, the behaviors that we must observe. But rather, it's about drinking from the new wine of who Jesus is. Communion together with who Jesus is. Now, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as we think about this passage is there's two different realities being portrayed here. There's the stone jars, the waters of purity that say there's a brokenness in me. I have to do this to qualify for the presence of God. I'm going to call that a faith of stone just for a moment. And then there's a new reality of the joy of new wine and communion with who Jesus is. So as a people of faith, when we think what it means to live out of the new wine, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Do we have a faith of stone or do we have a faith of joy? Which of those realities are we living out of? You know, I referenced earlier, I see time and time again a picture of someone not of faith that looks at who we are and sees a picture running low on joy. They see a faith of stone. They see a faith of belief, behaviors, boundaries. They see a faith of disqualifiers. They see a faith that presents reasons why they shouldn't be a part of our church communities. You know, when I think about this picture of the stone jars, and one of the things that I find find actually humorous about this whole story, is that when you imagine the the waters of these stone jars, they're there for that ceremonial cleansing. So as the, the different people arrive, they'd go to the jars, and literally what they'd do, they'd take of the waters from the jar, they'd wash their hands, they'd take some more water, they'd, they'd wash their face. This was an era when all the dudes had like really long, impressive beards. They'd wash their beards over the waters of the jar. There'd be all kinds of bits feeling, uh, falling into the jar. They'd take water from the jar and wash their feet. So although these had a function within their religious framework of purity, the waters of the stone jars were actually pretty unappealing, right? It's kind of like bath water. You know, I've got a couple of little boys, and, and when one of them in particular was about one till about two, he would do this thing that would just kind of freak me out mentally, that towards the end of the bath time, he would just start drinking bath water. Has anyone had a child that does that? Does it, does it just get at you at a part of your soul that you never knew was there? It's like, you cannot be drinking that bath water. I know at least one of you's peed in there in the last 15 minutes. There's all kinds of dirt and soil and all kinds of things. You cannot drink that water. That's so gross. You're getting out right now. 
It was one of the things that just indicated to me, okay, bath time's over. You're going to be drinking that water. You are out of the bath right now. Now, that's kind of what these waters of purity had become like. People washing themselves. Now, no one would voluntarily drink from the waters of purity. It's unappealing. People have been washing themselves in it all day as they arrive to this party. It's filled with dust and all kinds of things. The waters of the stone jars were not appealing. Do you know a faith defined only about boundaries? It's not appealing. No one wants to drink from that faith. No one wants to drink from a faith that says, this is why you're not okay. So what Jesus does, he takes the old framework of faith, he takes those waters that are not appealing, and he miraculously transforms them into wine that is the new wine, that is the best wine, that is incredibly appealing. And that's relationship born out of faith through grace in who Jesus is. So Jesus is making a powerful comment about who he is as the Messiah and what he's going to do upon the cross. So then we, as a people of faith, have to decide, what am I living out of? What do people see in me as I carry my faith? Do they see the stone? Or do they see the wine? Do they see a religious framework? Or do they see relationship with Jesus that transforms and renews? Do they see all the things that separate me from who God is or belonging in the context of church? Or do they see a community of people so defined by love that I just can't help myself but want to be amongst it? I don't exactly know how God works or faith works, but there's something expressed in this person, in this community that I just want to be around. You know, that's the life of the party of theology is a life completely filled with the new wine and the new joy of who Jesus is. That when people look at us as the people of faith, the first thing they should see is that joy of the new wine that Christ has provided on our, half, on our behalf. For that joy to fill and flow out of us. So the people around us, like the master of the banquet, I have no idea where this came from but it is awesome. I have no idea what's going on with you as the people of faith, but you guys are awesome. Imagine if that was the picture. That was the story being told in our communities. You know, as True North, we have the opportunity. We're in fact invited by Jesus to shape that narrative so people see first the joy of Christ in us and not all the other stuff. <laughs> you know, we're going to take communion together here in just a few moments, and such a cool thing to do around this particular story in John chapter 2. I'm going to invite the team to come up and join us. And that, that picture of what Jesus is saying as bringing that new wine, that the old way, the old framework is gone, and now it's about I've provided the new wine, I am the new wine. And then the encouragement of Scripture today is to live out of that new wine. And today, today we're going to gather around, around the table. And I love that we do communion this way because it expresses again that picture of celebration. It's a symbolic meal together. 
It's a symbolic meal when we come together around the joy of who Christ is. And of course, one of our symbols is the, the little cup. In a lot of contexts, it, it would be wine. For us, it's just grape juice. But it's the symbol of that new wine. It's the symbol of that abundant joy that we have in our Savior. And the bread, the cup together, tell us where it came from. The sacrifice of Jesus. In this moment where he turns water into wine is a picture, as I said, of what he's going to do on the cross and in his resurrection. That we drink together the new wine of joy, the abundant wine of joy of our Savior. And as we drink it, we align ourselves with the heart of Christ to say, Jesus, we're going to carry that same abundant joy. So I want to invite you as you approach the table in a few moments' time to come with a particular prayer in your heart to say, Jesus, I recognize that this is the new wine and what you have done on my behalf. And then have another prayer in your heart. Say, Jesus, help me to live out of the joy of this moment. Help me to live out of the joy of this moment. So when people see my faith, they see a picture of joy abundant. Can we stand together? I'd love to pray for us. And then as you feel comfortable, please come to the table, take the cup, take the bread, and we're gonna share in communion together. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your presence here this morning. God, we thank you for what you did through your son, Jesus. And God, I pray that in this moment, the thing that we take hold of is the joy of our salvation. The thing that we take hold of is the joy of communion with you, our Savior God. And Jesus, I pray that more and more that could be expressed in who we are as the people of faith. God, we thank you for your provision. We thank you that you are that new wine. And Lord, as we gather around the table, I pray that you would fill us with that new wine of joy. Lord, if there are any parts of any of us that are a bit more like the stone jars. God, I pray that you would soften the stone of our hearts, Lord. And that we would be defined by the abounding joy of our salvation. Lord, help us to carry it. Help us to be a people of joy and party expressed in the abundance of your joy in us. God, we praise you. And we lift your name up as we gather around the table. Amen. As you feel ready, please.